All right. Well, this morning we're going to jump back into the book of Nehemiah. Last week we started what will be a 13-week study in the book of Nehemiah, and we kind of began last week with this brief overview of the whole book, and this morning we're just going to jump into chapter one. But I want to reiterate something before we even get started, and that's that you will start seeing some more prayer events popping up for our church, and one of the reasons for that is because we just really want to kind of lean into seeing what it looks like to, as a church, be praying together more. And so that may be uh, the event that's coming up. I know some of our elders are talking about starting to host like a weekly prayer gathering at our building at like 6 a.m. in the morning, one day a week. And this is not like we expect everybody to show up, but if you have a heart to pray, um, then we would love for you to make time every now and then to come hang with us and pray with us. And we just really believe that God is stirring up something specifically like in this area and not sure what that is, but we really want to seek him and in, in his will for our church and for our city and see what he has in store for us. So let me pray for us and we'll dive in this morning. Uh, Jesus, we just give you this time and I thank you for your word. God, last week as we read through 12 minutes of scripture, I was just so, so challenged with the fact that we don't do that enough. And I just am praying this morning, God, that your word would do what you intended for it to do, or that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you'd help us parse the word and understand it, but also be a people that don't just understand it and know it, but a people that actually live it out. And so we give you this time, Jesus, and we pray your hand be upon every aspect of it. And I thank you for each person here, as I know that you've brought them not for some coincidence this morning, but because there's a purpose they're here. And so I pray that you'd speak to us, God, and we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, as I said, we, we kind of flew over the book of Nehemiah, and I gave you an, kind of a, an overview of where the events in Nehemiah exist on this grand timeline of redemptive history. And I'd recommend that if you weren't here last week and you want to get caught up on that, go back and listen to the podcast and kind of get caught up on where we're at. Um, but I also gave us a couple major themes to, to keep in mind as we continue to work our way through Nehemiah over the coming months. And, and a few things that we're going to be returning back to throughout the, the next few months. But this morning, we're going to spend all of our time in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And there's a lot to... Uh, get into this morning. So if you want to open up your Bibles with me, it's also going to be on the screens, but I will challenge you this morning. If you don't have a Bible, open it up on your phone. I think there's something significant in us immersing ourselves in the Word and following along. And so I encourage you to do that and not just take my word for it this morning, but actually take God's word for it. So Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 is where we'll be. Um, Quick history lesson as we dive into this before we jump into the actual text. Nehemiah is the last book of history of sorts in the Old Testament. And so chronologically speaking, although the the book of Nehemiah, as you see it in your Bible, is number 16 out of 39 in the Old Testament, you could put it chronologically as like number 37 or 38 or 39 in the Old Testament. It actually goes towards the end. You could attach it to Esther. And so it's the last book of history in the Old Testament. In fact, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who make up the last three books of the Old Testament, were contemporaries of Nehemiah's. They were the prophets that spoke to the people during this time. Who really cares, right? But, uh, but it's important 
Because after Nehemiah, the, the next thing that takes place historically speaking is what? It's the coming of Jesus, the, the coming of the Messiah. But before that happens, God brings his people back to Jerusalem. So the temple has been rebuilt, the people have been restored, the walls and the homes have all been remade by this time. And so the next recorded event is the, the arrival of Jesus. And so Nehemiah, if you really want to appreciate what comes next, has to be understood. Like we, this is a, a pretty critical book. Nehemiah is sort of setting the table for the coming of Christ. And so you'll see why this is important as we study through the book in the coming weeks. But as we talked about last week, Nehemiah sort of ends tragically, not to spoil the end for you, but even though there are many things to celebrate in the book of Nehemiah, it actually ends with God's people once again forsaking the Lord and Nehemiah becoming very angry, super despondent. We talked about this last week. He starts pulling people's hairs out, right? And he's getting frustrated and that's sort of the end. But in all honesty, it's actually really amazing because even though this is the, the last book of sorts in the Old Testament, it's not the last book in God's story. And I wanna remind us of that this morning. And although we're gonna learn so much from the leadership of Nehemiah in the weeks ahead, Nehemiah isn't the hero of the story. And even though the book leaves you sort of scratching your head and going like, man, if this guy Zerubbabel can't do it and Ezra can't do it and Nehemiah can't do it, if they can't accomplish God's purposes and, and plans, then actually who can? Which is a really good question for us to ponder. And the answer is given to us 400 years later after this in Jesus. That he's the one who actually can. And so before we dig in, I want you to see that the story of Nehemiah also has this amazing overlay for you and I as well, right? The story of Nehemiah is the story about these rebuilding of walls and, and the homes in Jerusalem, but it's more a story about the rebuilding of a people through the grace of God who come together under the word of God, committed to the glory of God, and they begin to be a light to the nations and to the ends of the earth. And so it's a story that displays like in a story form, really the, the call of the church, which is built up as living stones, with Christ being the cornerstone of his church. And so Nehemiah is this book that points ahead to this better temple, which is not a building. Like so many people, if you've ever been in a church who've used the book of Nehemiah to present a building project to you, right? Like a capital campaign, we're gonna build this house. Well, that's really not the purpose of this book because this book had nothing to do with the building of a physical thing. It actually was the building of a people. The establishment of God's people. That's really the premise of the book. Jesus himself, like this new Jerusalem, which isn't a city, but it was the people of God. And so this is very much like a book that's worth your time. We have these journals over here that I talked about last week. They're like five bucks, and it's basically a journal with Nehemiah written on one side and some empty pages on the other. And I would challenge you guys in the coming weeks to not just come on Sundays and listen to what I have to say, but to read Nehemiah for yourselves, to pray, to seek the Lord, to take notes, to journal, to spend time with Jesus. Because as the church, you cannot live off of just what I say in a 40 minute period of time on Sunday mornings. I'm not that gifted, you know? Like I just don't have the capability to, to, to do that much. <laughs> the word of God does. And so I challenge you guys to spend time in the coming weeks to actually immerse yourself in this and to learn about the story and how Jesus was at work even in the book of Nehemiah 
400 years prior to him coming to earth. And so Nehemiah paints this picture of a God who, who really stands in control of the earth. Like he's in control of everything, which couldn't be any more relevant, I don't think, than for today. When our world seems to be spinning out of control and people are asking questions like, what is going on? Where is God? Is there anything else that is in control right now? Because it feels as though everything is out of control. I think this book speaks to our condition today. So Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. We'll read through 11. Say a word when you get there. Awesome. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And listen to this. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there." There are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he ends chapter one with this. Now I was a cupbearer to the king, which is interesting. To give you some brief context, at the end of this chapter, Nehemiah lets us in on his life and his vocation, right? That he's a cupbearer. And he tells us that, yeah, he's a cupbearer to this king. And what that means is that his job was to serve the king of Persia wine. That's what Nehemiah did. And he's not just like a bartender or like some sort of an errand boy, like filling up the cup of the king. Uh, when his wine gets a little bit low. But the cupbearer is a really prestigious position. So the, they're responsible for the health and the welfare of the king. One of the most common ways of assassination in Greek times was through poisoning. And so they had to worry about this. And so kings and other very powerful people would hire someone that would make sure that their beverages and their food were void of any contamination or void of any poison. So when you think about it, you couldn't have just anybody be your cupbearer, right? How many of you in this room are like, I know who I'd pick and I know who I wouldn't, right? I know who's gonna play jokes on me and who's, who really doesn't care. Like you literally need to trust this person with your life. 
and not even someone that you could just trust with their life, but actually someone who you could trust with your life, who you would actually be smart enough and sharp enough, who would be sharp, smart enough and sharp enough to handle the job at hand. Like you needed somebody that would be gifted, like logistically, somebody who was gifted administratively to be able to dis like discern and thwart any plot that's been staged against you as the king, anybody that's trying to take your life, you need to know all of the logistics. And so from the moment the grapes come off of the vine, all the way to the point that the cup touches the king's mouth, this person had to be part of that process. This was a really unique person, and so Nehemiah was that kind of person. And so as we work through the book, you'll see just how unique Nehemiah was. Nehemiah is this man that has tremendous like administrative gifting, right? He has this sharp eye for detail. He's the perfect guy to build this wall, actually. He's meticulous, but he's also a man of great integrity. And so he's open and he's transparent about the way that he lives his life. And, and what we'll see as this book goes on is that it's no wonder that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to a Persian king. Like despite it being particularly strange that Nehemiah himself is not Persian. Nehemiah is actually Jewish. And so just think about that for a moment. The Persian king, he could have anybody he wants to do this job. He has power, but he's trusted Nehemiah with his life, this Jew. And at some points, the king would have even confided in Nehemiah, someone who was not even Persian, somebody from a different Nationality, And so that says a lot about Nehemiah's character, about his integrity. And at this specific point, it's really important because while Nehemiah serves as this Persian, serves this Persian king as his cupbearer, and he supports this Persian empire, which is a thousand miles away from home in Jerusalem, Nehemiah still ends up closely identifying with his people, the nation of Israel, the people of God. So read verses one and two again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. And so if you stop here, what, what do we see so far? First we're told that it's the month of Chislev. This is around November or December on the Jewish calendar. It's winter time. Nehemiah is in the city of Susa, which makes sense because not only was this an important city in Persia, but it was also the winter king to, or the winter home to the king. So this is where the king would go in the winter time. And so at this time he's serving King Artaxerxes. And this king is in the 20th year of his reign, according to this passage, which means that this is ha the halfway point for the empire of Persia. So it's gonna be overrun by Alexander the Great in the mid 300s. And so looking at verse two, this convoy shows up of sorts in Susa, and Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, is part of this group. And so he asks Nehemiah, what's the latest with Jerusalem? Or Nehemiah asks him, what's the latest with Jerusalem? Like, how are the people doing there? He has no idea. So a couple things to note about Nehemiah at this point. First, more than likely, Nehemiah was probably born in Persia, not in Judah, not in Jerusalem. Um, and, and remember that the, the, the overthrow of that nation happened over 100 years prior to this. 
Two, he, he probably had never even been to Jerusalem, most likely. He wasn't born when Zerubbabel went back. That, that was 100 years prior. And he obviously hadn't joined Ezra either. And so that would have made it super difficult for Nehemiah to go back home. Like, his job was being cupbearer for the king. Like, it didn't allow for a ton of PTO, right? Didn't get a ton of paid time off, and it's super far away. So Nehemiah's probably never even been to his hometown. And so I bring all of this up for a particular reason because in spite of all of that, not being born there, never visiting there, Nehemiah had this heart, this deep passion for the city. He had a heart for the city because it wasn't just any city, it was actually God's city. Jerusalem was God's city. We'll see the city continue to be referred to as the holy city again and again in Nehemiah. And it's a holy city because God chose to use this city to meet with his people in the temple located in this city on Mount Zion. And so he had a heart for the city because of what the city represented, because of what the city was actually connected to. But not only that, he also had a heart for the people. Like he, he wanted to know not just, hey, how's the city doing? How's city life? But he wanted to know how the people are. How are our people? How are they doing? And very simply, Nehemiah cared deeply for his people. And he shows us that in the way he writes this text. And the reason I point this out is because if you were ever to study like the great works of Christian men and women that they've done over the last century, let's say, what you'd find out is that great works aren't necessarily birthed in primarily in need or even the gifting of a person who provided leadership for those great works. They're actually birthed primarily out of care and passion. People that had a deep burden for people. People that saw a need and, and really cared deeply to step into it. And so Nehemiah cared. He cared about the city, he cared about the people, he, he cared about the glory of God. Like, this had to be a very unique person and Nehemiah was this unique person that the time needed. And so as we work through the book, you're gonna see just how unique Nehemiah was, that Nehemiah is a man that has tremendous administrative gifting, that he has this really sharp eye for detail, that he's meticulous, that he's a man of great integrity. But it, at a time when apathy is so prevalent in our church, in the church, in America, in the West today, I read this passage and I think to myself like, this is a breath of air, a breath of fresh air, like somebody who actually cares. Nehemiah would have also known about the pilgrimage of Ezra, right? But as we're gonna see when we get to chapter eight, Ezra is actually still in Jerusalem. He hasn't come back. And for all we know, no news has come back. And so Nehemiah would have also known that when Zerubbabel went back 100 years prior, that during his pilgrimage, there was this attempt to build the walls then. But these false reports come out that, from the nations around Judah. And so the king at that time stopped rebuilding these walls. And what Nehemiah wants to know is what kind of progress has actually happened in the city under Ezra? Because there's no news. There's no newspapers. There's no Google. There's no Facebook. There's no phones. Ezra himself hasn't come back. And Susa is like a thousand miles from Jerusalem. Like it's San Fran from here to San Francisco away from us. That's a long trip via foot or via camel, right? 
And so when these guys roll into town, the first thing on Nehemiah's mind is, what's the latest? Tell me some good news about the city. And the answer that he gets back is super bleak. In verse 3, it says, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and great shame. Another word for shame there is disgrace. The, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so as it relates to the, the, the physical sort of infrastructure of Jerusalem, no progress has been made. The, the walls and the gates are still in disrepair. They're torn down. They're burned. And so it's easy to understand why the people there would have been in great trouble because walls actually fortified cities. It's what created protection around cities. If a city had no walls, then the city had no protection from their enemies. But, but why would the walls be being torn down and the gates burned be a disgrace to the people? And it's because of what that represented. That they were a constant reminder of God's judgment on their sin and, and on their rebellion. And so these torn down walls represented a torn down people. Like the whole thing was going to hell in a handbasket, right? Do you remember the, the warning that God gives to Solomon? He says, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they had abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on their gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. They had turned their backs on the Lord. And this is why they felt this shame. This is why the people felt disgraced in this moment. But there also must have been some doubts about God's promises mixed in with this disgrace as well. Like what about being a nation of priests? Like that was a promise. What about David's throne existing forever? That was a promise. What about being a light to the nations? This was a promise. And now along with their God, they're, they're being mocked, they're being scoffed at, and the, quest, the question really was, is there any hope ahead for our people? Was God still for them? Like, it's been a hundred years. Is God still with us, for us? Are his promises still good? And so that's the news that Nehemiah receives. So how does Nehemiah respond? Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I mourned for days, wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, there are times in your life when we hear news or we hear about something. And our response is to sort of sympathize, right? To sort of maybe like shed a tear or two and say things like, man, that's just really sad. That's just a bummer. And then we move on. I don't know if any of you in this room are like that. <laughs> but then there are times when we hear about something and our response comes from the innermost parts of us. Something in us literally breaks and we think to ourselves like, I have to do something. To step out of the story for a little while, I believe we're at a moment in time like this. Where if the state of our world doesn't break us from the inside out and lead us to a place of saying, I'm gonna weep and mourn for days because of what I see happening in this world. I mean, my wife and I often sit there and say like, I can count on two hands the amount of marriages I know that are on the rocks right now. 
I can count on multiple hands the amount of people that I know running from the Lord, walking away from the Lord. I can count on multiple hands the amount of pastors that are just like leaving their post because they're so fed up with the church. People that are so, like, I, you go down the list, we are living in a day and age where if what we see now does not break us from the inside out and lead us to a place of mourning, God, what can we do? How have you asked us to step in? This is where Nehemiah is at. He's broken. It's his people. It's his city. It's in disrepair. It seems very hopeless. It was not what he expected, and his heart breaks in this moment. That's the news he receives. He thinks, I have to do something. Like, I don't care what anybody else does. I have to go. I have to do this. I have to serve. I have to give. That's verse 4 for Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah's whole life changes in verse 4. But the first thing he does before anything else is what? This isn't rhetorical. What does he do? He prays. The first thing Nehemiah does is praise. He doesn't start moving. He doesn't start to, like, just go and do he starts praying. And as I said earlier, Nehemiah is not the hero of the book of Nehemiah, but it doesn't mean that we can't learn a ton from him. And one of the things that we learn is that he was this man of prayer, that he was a great leader, but Nehemiah wasn't a great leader who prayed. Nehemiah was a great leader because he prayed. It started there for him, and there's a big difference between that. This is the first of nine prayers of Nehemiah recorded in the book of Nehemiah. And with the time that we have left, I want to touch base just on a few things that we learned from this prayer that Nehemiah prays. The first thing is this, is that the prayer he's about to pray is it's genuine. Like he sits down, he weeps, and he mourns. One commentator said this, that Nehemiah's heart broke over the things that broke God's heart. And do you know what Nehemiah does here? Nehemiah does what Jesus does later when he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem because Jesus says that they were like sheep without a shepherd, that his heart broke for the state of a city. Secondly, the prayer that he prays is sacrificial. Like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that all of our giving should be sacrificial. So in Nehemiah's case, he sacrificed time, he sacrifices food, he fasts, he sacrifices time to pray for a number of days before the Lord on behalf of his people. Thirdly, his prayer is persistent. As I mentioned, he, he mourns, he fasts, he weeps, he prays for a number of days. He writes, um, he, he writes in verse 6 that he prayed day and night. But there's even more to this, right? Because if you look at verse one of chapter two, which we'll be in next week, it's not until the month of, the month of Nisan that, that Nehemiah has a chance to talk to the king about going to Jerusalem. And so the month of Nisan is four months after the month of Chislev. So that means about 120 days later, and I think it's safe to say that Nehemiah is praying for four months, seeking the Lord for four months. In fact, when you look at verse one, it seems that he's still mourning and he's still praying 120 days later. And why is that important? Like, I, I hate to sort of give away the story, um, but eventually the wall gets rebuilt, right? And how long did that take? Anybody? 52 days it took for Nehemiah to rebuild this wall, which means what? That Nehemiah spent 
over twice the time praying that he did building the wall. That's crazy. Four months praying and fasting, mourning, to build a wall that he could build with the people in 52 days. Fourthly, his prayer was knowledgeable, right? Nehemiah is knowledgeable about two things in particular. Nehemiah knows who God is. He knows the scriptures. Secondly, he knows who God's people are. Look at verse five. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Like Nehemiah's prayer in verse five starts out sort of like the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, right? Nehemiah begins with, O Lord God of heaven. And it reminds us again that as overwhelming as things seem as though they can be, our God actually stands in supreme oversight over it, over everything, over the heavenlies, right? The, over his kingdom and the earth, it says, is his footstool. But what Nehemiah also knows about God is that he's great, that God is awesome, that he's gracious, that he is a covenant-keeping God, that he will follow through with his promises. And all of these things are things that Nehemiah begins his prayer with. And I have to think that these are probably all the things that the people of Jerusalem are doubting with and struggling with the most are the things that Nehemiah is praying and reminding them about the promises and the God that they serve. Also, looking at our culture today, I'm like, everybody's throwing stones at the Christians and at the church. Everybody is wondering, is God here? Is he in control? Where is he at in the midst of this? The church should be the ones to rise up in this season and say, we know the promises of God. We know how this thing ends. We know where this is headed. We need to be the ones that are reminding people, the signposts pointing to the goodness and the faithfulness of God in these days. And Nehemiah stands up and that's what he's doing. He's like the signpost. The signpost. And what Nehemiah knows about God's people, we see in verse 10 that they're your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And this is amazing. This is Nehemiah going to God and going, God, these aren't just any people. These are actually your people. You redeem them, God. You save them by your strength, by your strong hand. He knows who these people are and he reminds God of it. Fifth, is it's this penitent prayer also. Right, penitent meaning sorrowful. Anybody ever spent time in a penitentiary? <laughs> it's a place of sorrow, a place of mourning. It's this place of repentance. And that's what the, the, the that's, so, so this prayer is this penitent prayer of confession. It, it, it's repentance, it's, it's mournful prayer that Nehemiah sort of owns in the midst of this with his people, and it really stands out in verses six and seven, if you didn't see this. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people, listen to this, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And then he switches gears here and he says, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And so this passage is a bit baffling to me because Nehemiah doesn't strike me as a guy who acts corruptly. He's not some shyster. His life, as we'll see, and maybe as we've already seen, demonstrates this great reverence for God, a great reverence for God's commands. And so why does Nehemiah begin to include himself in this prayer? Well, I think one, that no one is guiltless from breaking the commands of God. We're all guilty, we've all done it. Two, is that God's covenant is with a people, not a person. And so God's promises are to a people, not a person. And God's call is to people, not a person. God's promise to raise up a nation was his promise. His promise to raise up a kingdom, not a bunch of individuals, to raise up a people. And therefore, it made sense that Nehemiah pray on behalf of the people and include himself in this group. But Anthem, the same is true for you and I today. God's raising up a family. He's actually raising up a body. He's raising up a household. He's raising up a city. We talk a lot about personal relationship with Jesus and personal devotions and personal time with the Lord and all of that is really good. But it's actually just a small, small part of our walk with Jesus because the Christian faith is actually a community faith. It's not an individual faith. We're saved individually, but we grow and do life together corporately. This is why we talk so heavily about family and community and use that verbiage in the church because it really is us. And if one suffers, we all suffer. And we're all in this together and we're praying for the body of Christ, the equipping of the saints. We're praying for all of us to be edified, for the church to be built up, not just Chris, the church, the whole body, we, we all need to be lifted up. Paul again says, when one suffers, we all suffer because we're actually a part of one another. And lastly about his prayer is this, is that it's this confident prayer. He goes on to say in verses eight and nine, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying that if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. I like how one person summed up this portion of Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah's prayer in saying that Nehemiah doesn't demand of God, but asks God for what they don't deserve, grace. Grace to remove their disgrace. And so as we wrap this up, there, there's something else that Nehemiah does in these verses that I really think we can learn from. He, he prays God's promises back to him, which is so interesting. He says to him in these verses that I just read, he says, remember God, remember what you promised Moses. Remember God. And then what he does is he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30 where God through Moses said the following to his people. He said, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nation, all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you 
And if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. I heard someone say recently that prayer, in part, is asking God for what he promised to do. And that's what Nehemiah does here, right? God, remember what you said. God, remember what you said. And we can remind God of his promises as well. We can remind him of those things with confidence because God is always true to his word. And so Nehemiah's prayer ends with verse 11. He says, oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Sometimes God calls priests, sometimes God calls kings, and sometimes he calls wine tasters, right? <laughs> so interesting. And as I close, there's just a handful of questions that I kind of want to throw out there to you this morning to have you ponder for a second. Four questions. One, and please take this in this morning. I want you to let this sink into your heart. Does your heart break for the things that break God's heart? How would you this morning describe the way you feel about God's glory and God's people? Would you describe that with care or would you describe that with apathy? Does your heart break for the things that break God's heart this morning? Two, are you a person of prayer? Like, does prayer precede action in your life and then weave its way into the things that you do? Do you start with prayer? Three, are you this morning living in a place of sin or rebellion where your life has been given to these things? Like, despite God's goodness towards you, you continue to run and continue to sow your seeds and do your things? Do you need to be reminded this morning that he redeemed you, that he saved you, that he provided for you? But, but in spite of his goodness, are you living in a place this morning of sin and rebellion? Like, are you running from the Lord? And four, as you and I live sort of here and now as exiles in this new Babylon, in this world, do you live in light of God being the God of the heavens? That as crazy as our world seems, you believe that God stands supreme over the world? Or are you somebody who today is doubting his promises to you? Do you know who God is? Do you know who it is that you are in Christ? Because the word tells us that if we're in Christ, we're a new creation, that we are Christians. That means that you are his. You're his people. You're his servant. He redeemed you. Do you know that this morning? First and foremost, do you know that? Do you know his promises and do you pray them back to God to expect him to follow through with what he said he would do? And I'll challenge you this morning that the time is now. I want the worship team to come up. And as we enter into this time of worship, I've been really challenged the last few weeks that we, we open the word of God and we study it in order to respond to it. And that's just not necessarily the way that the Western church has been 
structured. We often think that the precipice of our service, our gatherings together, is just opening the word and reading through it and make sure we get that time from the pastor. But really, the peak of our time together in the Lord is what is he saying to you this morning as a result of his word? Does your heart break for the things that break his? Are you a person of prayer? Are you somebody who's running this morning and just trying to live your life for yourself that maybe the Lord's calling you back? Maybe the Lord's drawing you to himself. Or, or last, lastly, do you live in light of a God being the God of the heavens? Do you understand his promises and know who you are in him and who he is and what it means to serve him? And this morning, maybe there's some of you that God's just calling to himself. Maybe there's some of you that God is calling to your knees to become a person of prayer. Not somebody who prays, but a person that starts with prayer first and then begins to act as the Lord leads and prayer gets woven in every facet of their life. Some of you are people who your heart just breaks when you see what you're seeing in our world right now. It breaks for marginalized people. It breaks for the people who God's heart breaks for. Stop running from that. Let that sink in this morning. Let that lead you to a point of prayer because there's something that the Lord's trying to establish in what he does in you and through you from this point on that will come from your time with him. And so as we spend time in worship this morning, here's my challenge to you. You can sing the songs on the screen and you can worship. That's great. But as we sing to the Lord, maybe there's some of you this morning, and we'll wait for this, that need to come forward and you need prayer. One of these four things this morning in your life is it's like pricking your heart. Your heart's breaking for others, and you need prayer. Like, what does that look like? How do I begin to walk in this? God's calling you to prayer. Would you pray with me that I would be a person that would be grounded and founded in prayer? Some of you, you've ran from the Lord. God's calling you back to himself this morning. And some of you just need to be reminded of the promises of God. That even though the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket and life has been tough, his promises still remain. He is still consistent and he will still see them through till the end. Amen? Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. Each of them have a red lanyard on. And as we enter into this time of worship, I just ask you, man, if the Lord is working in your heart this morning, come forward and grab one of us or one of the people with the prayer lanyard on this morning and let us pray for you. And I, and I literally just kind of want to sit in this moment and wait for the Lord to bring you because I think there's something significant about us stepping out of our seats coming forward and saying, would you contend with me? Would you pray for me? You can do that on your own, but there's something super sweet about the church partnering with you in that, a community of faith rallying around you and praying with you this morning. And so as we worship, feel free to come forward and get prayer as you feel led.